Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Jonathan Saffron Foer is an outspoken vegetarian and celebrated author with runaway bestsellers like Everything is Illuminated, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, Here I Am, Eating Animals, and his latest, We Are the Weather. It's an honor to have him here on the show today. Jonathan, welcome. I'm a huge fan of your work, so it's great to finally have you here. Thank you. Really happy to be here and happy to be here at this particular moment in uh, history. It, it is an exciting time in history. And so over the time, we're going to talk a lot about food and nutrition and the connection to the environment. And I imagine your approach to everyday eating changed pretty drastically. So can you walk through what catalyzed your mental and then dietary shift? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Like, I don't know if I would say that my thinking changed drastically. It's been, or maybe I would put it this way. Like my thinking has changed drastically many times. And I first became a vegetarian when I was nine because of a babysitter that we had who was not at all a proselytizer or an advocate even of any kind. She was just a quiet vegetarian, and I learned that when I asked why she wasn't eating fried chicken with my older brother and me, and she said, I, I don't want to hurt animals unless it's necessary, and it's such a, it sounds almost like a child, it sounds like a childlike thought, if not a childish thought, but as a nine-year-old, I couldn't think of any rebuttal. As a 43-year-old, I can't think of any rebuttal. The world is very complicated and eating is very complicated because of nutrition, because of personal history, because of culture, um, and many other reasons as well. But that idea really did always stick with me. So since I was nine, I have learned a lot of things, um, both about the world, the relationship between food and the world, whether it is the, the effects of animal agriculture on the climate or on the environment more broadly, or on human health via disease, via pandemics, on farming communities. Also, in the intervening time, I've learned a lot about myself. And one of the things that I've learned is despite my best intentions and despite having it's hard it can be hard to change and i have found that change to be not a dramatic event but actually a very mundane process that has challenged me regularly for like decades now so you mentioned proselytizing when in the context of your babysitter and she didn't proselytize when you first made that shift. And I think that's such an interesting concept because I, I think what we see a lot so many times with nutrition or diet, people make a change and they do it for a variety of reasons. For example, maybe there was a, a health event and they changed their diet and all of a sudden they went from fearing, feeling terrible to feeling great. And all of a sudden, wow, this is amazing. And it becomes their identity. And I'm interested to hear your thoughts about 
you don't necessarily need to change your identity or ascribe to a rigid diet in changing the way you eat. It's, it's not necessary. And I think we get caught up in that in our world today where we tend to self-identify pretty strongly with regards to nutrition and having a strong point of view. It's like a metaphor. <laughs> like it's, it's bigger than nutrition. But can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it's very... It, it can be both comfortable and uncomfortable to have an identity, an eating identity. It's comfortable because... You know, once you've acknowledged that something is the right way to eat, or the right way to be, um, it feels bad not to see that through in, the, in terms of the choices that we make in our daily lives. It feels hypocritical. And I think that change can be very exciting. Anybody who's ever made change for ethical reasons in their lives knows that it feels awesome, at least for a little bit. You feel, for good and bad reasons, you feel proud, you like to share with other people that you've made that change. And the problem is, as exciting as it is to that moment or that event of change, carrying it out over time, like ultimately you can't escape your who you are and your habits and cravings and your personal history, not to mention like your social circle and what's available to you. So I, I think there are an awful lot of people, I, I believe most people, and this is not dependent on what your political affiliation is, or your age or gender or race, or whether you live in a city or in a country. I think that the values that are at stake when we talk about what we eat uh, are nearly universal. That thing that my babysitter said when I was nine about, I don't want to hurt animals unnecessarily. My guess is virtually all Americans agree with that statement. 96% of Americans think that animals deserve legal protection from cruelty. I think that virtually all Americans agree that we need to take care of the, pl the planet even if some of the details become divisive. But, you know, the majority of Republicans have said they wanted to stay in the Paris Climate Accords, which is like a pretty robust climate treaty. The challenge is when we, instead of taking a long and hard look at the cause and effect chains that we participate in and the ways in which our daily choices make a difference, when it becomes a question of identity and a binary, you are this or you are not this, then people uh, become afraid. Then most people are not ready to make a pretty dramatic identity shift. And it's not because they're bad or ignorant or lazy. It's because it's scary. You know, it's scary to depart from the habits of your life and your parents' lives and your grandparents' lives. But so something, something I often think about is what are the odds that in five years, half of America will be vegetarian, I think the odds are zero. What are the odds that in five years, half of the meals eaten in America will be vegetarian? I actually think that there's a real likelihood of that. The outcome in terms of how animals are treated, in terms of the health of the planet, in terms of our own health, is the same with those two paths. One of them, though, is so obviously easier. Um, so we do need, I think, to make a shift away from it's an all or nothing choice 
to we want our nearly universal values reflected in our daily actions. So you mentioned people being scared. You mentioned uh, change and you mentioned the environment. So I'm curious, do you see the pandemic as an opportunity for people to make changes in their quote unquote new normal routines in a way that actually benefit the environment? Well, it's certainly an opportunity. I don't know if it's an opportunity that will be taken advantage of. I can I can speak for myself. I have no idea what how other people are experiencing this, but there was certainly a period of a few weeks, maybe even a few months, when I was really sensitive to my choices in a way that I hadn't been previously sensitive to what is essential. That expression kept coming up, essential workers, essential goods and services. Um, and I did scale back, and I did feel a different sense of citizenship, of responsibility to others, a different recognition of the fragility of what we have. And then maybe because I'm a little bit intellectually or emotionally lazy, or maybe just because I'm a human being. I don't think I, anyone would say you're intellectually lazy. Well, I'm going to go on the record and say, Jonathan Safran Foer is not intellectually lazy. <laughs> he, he really is. You should spend some more time with him. No, I'm not joking. And I'm not like protesting too much either. Like I'm an author. And I write about things that I care about. And I write with as much energy and thoughtfulness as I can. But I'm also a person. And uh, this is something I actually write about in We Are the Weather. Like a lot of the things that I believe and would ask other people to believe, I have a hard time in my own life um, seeing through. And um, I'm not making a joke and I'm not diminishing myself when I say that I have a real laziness. I, I, I suspect it's true about everybody. And just acknowledging that is a great starting point for change. Like instead of measuring our distance from some perfection that we're never going to achieve, instead of virtue signaling our accomplishments that aren't even really our accomplishments, if instead we start by saying, these are important changes that we have to make, and it's really tricky. It's just really tricky. I find that when somebody shares with me their struggles to change, I find that really inspiring, really accessible, and it makes me want to participate. When somebody shares their accomplishments, I, I honestly get turned off. I usually find it, and it doesn't ring true maybe most importantly. People who have an easy time making huge changes doesn't ring true to me. So you mentioned huge changes and many get overwhelmed with in the conversation with the environment and say, well, there's just, there's so much, or I can't do that. I can't buy a hybrid. I can't, or I can't buy an EV. I, I can't do that. However, th there is what you talk, what you say is this idea of micro change. And so when it comes to the individual, I think so much of the conversation needs to be around these micro changes and individual responsibilities. So can you talk about what we as individuals can do to move the needle in terms of climate change? So I think it's important to talk about micro change. It's also important to talk about systemic change because we have no hope unless both occur. We cannot save the planet with micro changes. We cannot save the planet without micro changes. So recognizing that it's necessary but not sufficient is important. We need leaders who legislate change. We need different 
corporate practice. We need something akin to a carbon tax. We can't do it without those things, but we also can't do it unless individuals reshape their habits, both because of the very straightforward impact that those changes will have on the environment, but also because of more subtly how those things will provoke systemic change. Tesla is the most, uh, the largest automobile manufacturer in the history of the United States. They weren't legislated into being. Uh, maybe Elon Musk has a good heart. Maybe he has no heart. I have no idea. But uh, the reason the company is successful is not because of his beneficence, but because people want to buy what he's selling. The Beyond Meat had one of the most successful IPOs in the last 10 years in the American stock market, not because the company was legislated into being, but because people want that. And the marketplace obviously responds and is beholden to what people want. So as we want different things, as we withhold our money from bad actors and give it to better actors, we're not only making these decisions that clearly impact our carbon footprint, but that drive the whole cultural conversation. So in terms of what we can do, there are four activities that are considered high impact. And um, this is not an argument I'm making. It's not a story I'm telling. It's nobody's opinion. This is uncontroversial and unambiguous. Those four activities are flying, driving, having kids, and eating animal products. We need to fly as little as possible. We need to drive as little as possible. And when we drive, use public transportation, car sharing, and electric automobiles. We need to somehow control overpopulation, and we need to eat fewer animal products. But one of those is not like the other three. 85% of Americans who own cars drive them to work. And most Americans live in places that were designed to require cars. So it's nice to say that we should drive as little as possible. But the reality is it's not fair to say to most people. It's just it can't happen, whatever your intentions are. Or it can't happen as things are structured right now. More than half of flights that are taken are either for work or for what are called non-leisure personal purposes. COVID has shown us that we actually don't need to fly nearly as much as we had been, either to keep businesses going or to be happy. It's, it's going to be a tricky thing to unwind. That happened in population is, a, is another story altogether. But food is a choice that we make many times a day. And for everybody listening to this, it's an unconstrained choice. There, there are people in the world for whom it is a constrained choice, but for us, it's not. Let's stay on food for a moment. The subtitle of your book is Saving the Planet Begins at Breakfast. So can you unpack what begins? Let's talk about breakfast, food. So the most uh, comprehensive analysis of the relationship between animal agriculture and the environment was published at the end of 2018. And it found that while there are people on the planet who rely on animal agriculture for nutrition, for basic nutrition, and who don't have access to other kinds of nutrition. Citizens of Europe, the UK, and the United States need to reduce meat consumption by about 90% and dairy by about 60% in order to avoid what the authors called irreversible climate collapse. It's not to say that we have to, I mean, it's certainly not to say that we all need to become vegans or vegetarians, and it's not to say that we need to make those reductions tomorrow but it is what we need to be aiming toward. Animal agriculture is the leading source of both methane and nitrous oxide, which are two of the most powerful greenhouse gases. Methane is about 86 times as powerful as uh, carbon, and nitrous oxide is about 312 times 
as powerful. According to the United Nations in their report, Livestock's Long Shadow, which is really should be like required reading, animal agriculture is one of the top two or three causes of every significant environmental problem on the planet, both locally and globally. Air pollution, water pollution, deforestation, loss of biodiversity, and greenhouse gas emissions. There are different estimates for how much, just how much animal agriculture contributes to total greenhouse gas emissions. The very low estimate, I've never read a lower estimate provided by somebody outside of the meat industry, is about 15%. The high estimates are at about 50%. So you could look at that range and say, well, geez, it sounds like we really don't know. And why are we making these big changes in our lives when we don't know the science firmly enough? But that's not really the case. The difference in those estimates is largely due to what people include or don't include in the calculation. Like if we know that more than 90% of global deforestation is in the service of animal agriculture, do we include the burning of those trees when we include the greenhouse gas emissions associated with animal agriculture? Do we include the fact that those trees that no longer exist can no longer absorb carbon? Another way of looking at that difference in estimates between 15 and 50% is clearly it matters, but how much does it matter? You know, 15% is such, and that's the very, very low estimate, which almost nobody agrees with. That estimate is itself so large that we know we cannot solve this problem. We cannot meet the goals. As the IPCC in their most recent report said, we have no hope of meeting the goals of the Paris Climate Accords unless we really dramatically change how we eat. So how do you approach that conversation with someone in trying to convince them of the connection between diet and climate change. So what does that look like when you have that conversation with someone? Well, I think it's a conversation that's best had as a conversation, right? <laughs> as a uh, lecture, which really doesn't work. It's a conversation that's best had with humility and with a little sense of humor, if possible, not making the other person the referent for sure. And maybe not even making science itself the referent. I find that, again, like sharing my own struggles, my own doubts, my own uncertainty allows people to feel safer. And it's only natural that these conversations make people feel unsafe because we're talking about, of course, the fate of the planet. We're talking about human lives. We're also talking about our culture and our histories and our own you know, what you, you could call them cravings or you could call them weaknesses, but these fundamental parts of ourselves. So I think we have to enter the conversation appreciating the good reasons why somebody would be resistant or feel vulnerable, allow that to inform the way that we talk about it. I, I find that the most successful way to convince somebody is actually what my babysitter did when I was nine. She didn't have any lecture to make to us. She didn't make us feel guilty or shamed. Frankly, she wouldn't have said anything about it had we not asked. But just by modeling, just by allowing us to witness her choices, it really got us thinking. And I have found that the people who have changed me most, it's almost never because of an argument. It's almost always because of witnessing the choices they um, being drawn to ask about them 
rather than, than being put on the defensive. There are an awful lot of people who just don't want to go there. And I think we have to let them not go there. Um, the culture is changing with a kind of breadth and speed that it will take them along with the current. The people that I am most interested in are the kind of low-hanging fruit, the people who already think of themselves as environmentalists, the kind of people who are already open to all kinds of change, but hadn't yet contemplated, or not in a serious way, how eating differently might be their best way to participate in this. So how do you stay motivated, or in your words, how do you stay moved, as you've put it? I find it almost impossible. I don't trust my own ability to stay motivated or moved. So what I have tried to do is kind of short circuit that process by having a concrete plan. One of the last readings that I did before COVID was in Brussels. And at the end of the reading, there was a like a book signing. And about halfway into the book signing line was a young couple. And when they reached the front of the line, they opened the book, my book, and to the page that would normally be empty that I would sign. And it was filled with their handwriting. And I asked them, like, what's going on? What is this? And they said, we're going to get married in a couple months. And when we were listening tonight, we decided we really need to make a plan for what our life together will be. Because if we don't make a plan, we're just going to do what everybody does, which is what they did yesterday. Some version of the past, past habits. Their plan was have no more than two children, eat as vegetarians unless served meat at a friend's house, eat as vegans two days a week, only car sharing and no more than a thousand miles a year. And then instead of just having me sign their book, they had a line, they'd written a line and it said witness. I laughed kind of like you're laughing now. I find it charming. I found their approach charming. It takes a, it takes an interesting person, and I really revere this kind of person, who says, I'm going to eat as a vegan two days a week. I'm going to eat as a vegetarian the rest of the time, unless my friends serve me meat. That really risks hypocrisy or claims of hypocrisy. But I find it to be so self-knowing, like... This is what's important to me for anybody here, anybody listening, for you, for me, more than one thing is important to us at a time. And being able to navigate competing concerns takes not only a kind of intelligence, but it's risky. You know, it's risky to say this matters to me now, but this also matters to me now. So I'm going to do something that is going to feel inconsistent but is a reflection of the complexity of who I am. When I went home that night after the reading, what was what had been a kind of charming response, I felt charmed, I started to feel bad. Kind of like just down, a little sad, even a little depressed. And I couldn't figure out why until I did, which was I'm the guy who was like on stage that night. I'm the guy who wrote the book. I'm the guy who was signing the book. And yet I didn't have a plan. And not only did I not have a plan, it never even occurred to me, crazily enough, to have a plan. So I went back to my hotel that night and I wrote out a plan. And that really changed my life. Because before I had this plan, I would have said something like, I know it's important to fly less and I'm going to do my best in 2020 to fly less. When I was forced to really be clear to myself about what I meant, 
to really question what my own limits are. If you say I'm going to fly less, you feel like somebody who has decided not to fly at all. But in reality, you're probably somebody who hasn't made any changes in terms of like flight planning. I wrote down, I won't fly for vacation in 2020. I obviously didn't realize at the time how easy that would be. <laughs> um, that took my decision out of the realm motivation, as you were saying, and it made it simply who I am. So if I go into a store and there's something I want, I don't need motivation not to steal it. <laughs> to have um, a big intellectual memory of the social contract. I don't need to have like a flood of emotion when I imagine the poor shopkeeper and pulling money from his or her pocket effectively. I just don't steal because I just don't steal. I just don't. And it's who I am. And, I, and it is in effect my plan. It requires no internal debate. So we need to shape ourselves into people who don't steal from the planet and who don't steal from the future. And if we have to depend on thoughts and feelings, I just think we're going to fail. Not because we're bad, but because we're, we're human. So I think so many of us are trying to close the distance between who we say we are and what we do. And in, I'm curious, in what areas of your life do you lately find you're looking to close that distance the greatest? In, in virtually every area. I mean, I can't think of anything that I do in a way that fully satisfies me. Or I'd have to think about it, but nothing, there's room for improvement everywhere. While at the same time, there isn't need per, for perfection. When I shared with you the findings of that analysis of ag agriculture and the environment, it didn't say that we need to become perfect. It said that we need to live with a kind of moderation that we're not used to, that to some people will sound actually pretty easy, and to other people is going to sound impossibly difficult. But it is a spectrum. It's a place on a spectrum that isn't the end of the spectrum. I think about, I wish I didn't use my phone as much as I do. I wish I didn't watch TV as much as I do. I wish I spent more time being quiet than I do. I wish I read more than I do. I regret that I've made choices that are as based in consumption as they are. I live in a house that's too big. I spend money in ways that I regret. I'm, I'm not, and I should say, I'm not like beating myself up here. It's, I don't, I'm not saying I think I'm a bad person. I'm saying that I want to do better. And it's really hard in most of these areas I just mentioned to do better. So you're hitting on behavior change. So could you elaborate a little on the efficacy of falling out of feeling and into habit when it comes to changing your behavior to match your value system? Well, I think codifying what it is that you believe rather than moving it from something that would look nice on a poster at a climate march, <laughs> which, which by the way, is also important. I'm not making fun of that. Like part of a huge part of creating systemic change is going to climate marches and having those posters. So I'm not um, like poo-pooing that. I'm only saying that's not enough. And it doesn't, for most people, that doesn't guide their daily lives and the choices they make. I think better than that poster on your wall would be a list that you tape to your refrigerator that says, here's how I plan to eat. Here's how I plan to drive. 
here's how I plan to fly, and so on and so forth. I only mentioned four things, but there are many more than four things that we need to be giving thought to. So I think codifying, giving days of the week, numbers, amounts, concrete descriptions of change is the best way to move from feeling to action. So what are some of the things that you do that bring you satisfaction between meals? Oh man, that's a really broad question. <laughs> what are some things that I do that bring me satisfaction? Um, I think about my kids an awful lot and ways to make them happy ways to help them become themselves help them become adults that's that takes up an awful lot of my time um friendship takes up a lot of my time and is something that i feel like i understood the value of a little bit too late or embarrassingly late into my life making things always seems to feel good when it's things that are recognized by other people that feels good in a certain way when it's a very private kind of making something as simple as like weeding in my yard provides a lot of gratification i find generally that the time i spend on screens i regret and it doesn't make me more informed or happier or better and so i've been trying very hard um recently to spend as little time on screens as possible so you mentioned weeding and when i think of weeding i think of one's personal relationship to nature and i'm curious how your relationship with nature has informed your way of thinking living and ultimately writing well, because I live in Brooklyn, I would say 95% of my relationship with nature is through dogs. <laughs> I have three dogs. And that is sort of my most powerful way of escaping domestic life, of encountering something that is other from me. So much of modern or contemporary life is about making things customized for you. Our news is customized for us. You go on Netflix, there are movies selected for you. Spotify, there's music selected for you. The whole point of technology is through surveillance to know as much about us as is possible and to cater information and products we will be inclined to buy because they present reflections of ourselves that we like for whatever reason. Um, that can sometimes be really helpful and nice. I've certainly been led to all kinds of books and movies and music that way that I've been really grateful to, to know. But there's something to escaping oneself as well and to both to offer like perspective of when you sit with your laptop it's pretty easy to become confused about how central you are in the world. When you are facing an ocean, it's pretty easy to be reminded, or the night sky even, and to be reminded of how small we are. And I find that interacting with dogs is a really great way to escape myself a little bit. Like just 
being inside of that weird distance between what a human is and what a dog is, that distance of understanding and misunderstanding, I, I find it both like useful and also it feels good. I, I sense a new book in the works. No, probably not. <laughs> uh, I, listen, anybody who ever writes a good book about dogs, I will, I will be first in line to read it, but I'm not sure that I'm the person to write it. <laughs> so with regards to the conversation on climate change, in closing, I'm curious, what are you concerned about? And I'm an optimist, I'm a hope guy, and what are you optimistic about? Um, I think that that there are many ways of telling the same story and we've been telling the story of climate change just as we've been telling so many of our most important stories from healthcare to racial justice. Um, we've been telling them in a way that conceals rather than reveals just how broadly we agree. I don't think these are Democrat or Republican issues. I think that people love life and want more life. And um, I think that we have been slow to learn how to tell the story in a way that brings people together and motivates them to act in keeping with the values they already have. I don't think the challenge here is to instill new values in people, but to make the connections between the values they already have, which some of them get from science and some of them get from the Bible and some of them get from their like great grandparents and some of them are self-generated, but they're actually the same values. They really are. Um, and so as we find ways to make that obvious and to turn conversations that are threatening into ones that are inspiring, um, to turn ones that are judgmental and shaming into ones that are inclusive and optimistic, um, I think that I think we're in the process of doing that. And once we do, we'll see huge cooperation and change happen very quickly. I have no confidence that that will happen at the political level, which I'm largely resigned to thinking is going to be a permanent impediment. But on the level of what happens in classrooms and what happens around family dinner tables, I feel very hopeful. You mentioned the Bible, so I'll close with an amen. <laughs> Jonathan, thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate your time. You were, I should add, flexible with our timing as the world was uh, a little bit crazy. <laughs> and I'm just really appreciative of that. And you do such important work. And I'm really happy to be a small part of it. All good. Well, thank you for all that you do. Again, huge fan. So it's great to connect. So thank you. 